Well, good afternoon to all of you. Certainly enjoyed yesterday up in the mountains and having that nice picnic and visiting. Beautiful day turned out. We were hoping that for ten days ahead of time, and it uh, it worked out very beautifully. I think thank God for that, because it's uh, supposed to be warmer today, and then it's diving down again some. Not too cold, 70s, I guess, which is beautiful weather. Anyway, that being done, we have other things to do. We have special music uh, this afternoon entitled, Christ Was Waiting on the Beach. This was written in uh, remembrance of the things we addressed in John yesterday, or the day before, I guess it was. Christ Was Waiting on the Beach by Gloria Moss. Uh, she wrote it and she's singing it, taken from John 21, 13 through 23. Thank you. Now, I threw out a little bit of a teaser yesterday about the last day unleavened bread. Uh, I suppose you all did your homework and know all about it now, so I don't need to say much. But, uh, that's the dilemma I go through, just so you kind of know. Uh, somebody throws a question at you, and it may be something you haven't considered before, and says, what does God say? 
that one can be a difficult one, because he has a lot to say about a lot of things, and you're trying to figure out what he thinks about one certain thing, or a doctrine that maybe you've never had addressed, like this one, and what do you do with it? Because I was just noticing in uh, Leviticus 23, he doesn't say much in there at all about the symbolism or the types that have to do with any of the holy days or even the Sabbath. You have to go to other places in the Bible to see how the Sabbath to be kept, what it means. It just says in there, do it. Uh, then doesn't tell you how. So somebody, you read that maybe for the first time in your life, somebody says, Bible says keep the Sabbath. Okay. Now what? What does that mean? How do I do that? Uh, what's the Sabbath mean? What's it for? And that's kind of like this last day of unleavened bread. We, as I said before, uh, we have thoughts that come to mind immediately about the meaning of the rest of the holy days. Passover, of course, obviously Christ and his death and resurrection, uh, and the days of unleavened bread ending there, but what does that mean? We never really stop to think about it as far as types are concerned. But Christ, obviously, with his death and resurrection, the type goes on and on and on throughout the rest of man's experiences on earth, until everyone has had a chance at salvation. So that one's fairly easy to see, and not only that, uh, that type was fulfilled because they sacrificed the lamb, and they did all those things back then. Then we found 4,000 years, well, not 4,000, but 3,000-ish later, he came and lived and died and fulfilled it. So God doesn't do those things back there without having something in the future that has meaning from it. He has a plan. He has a purpose. Things are going to work out. And history tends to repeat or at least echo itself. God works in patterns, I think, as we all know by now. Uh, the next fulfillment may not have happened exactly as the original or the original action. It'll have different people. The timing might be different. The, there may be variations in terms of exactly how it happened, but it's pretty similar. And his death and resurrection was very similar to what happened there in ancient Egypt. Pentecost comes and we have our thoughts uh, that we've been told and had preached to us about it representing the first fruits and the coming of the Holy Spirit and uh, engagement uh, to Christ as the bride and so on. Trumpets, atonement, feast tabernacles. We all have types that either Herbert Armstrong or someone found in the Bible and carried them forward to events in the future. So, we come to the seventh day of unleavened bread, and somebody says, well, that appears to be the day they crossed the Red Sea, and that was a wonderful thing. And then we move on, and nothing else is said. But that is one of the very greatest miracles that God 
ever did. Can we pass it up that easily and that quickly without it having ramifications for future events? Not a chance. Not a chance, because it's one of the seven holy days or high days that God set apart uh, beyond just the weekly Sabbath. He added seven days to it that would have major importance. Why would he have emphasized them had that not been so? Pentecost, even. That's the day the law was given to Moses on Sinai. What a huge thing that was on one of the holy days. So those holy days obviously were to have great meaning, but we have to go through the rest of the Bible and sort that out and figure out what that meaning is. And in some cases, the Bible gives us some very strong clues uh, in things that it says about what happened in the Old Testament. By the New Testament church, by Paul and the other apostles, they would make comments about atonement or about the last great day of the feast or so on, which gave us clues to put the story together of what God's purpose is. Now, people in religion here and there don't do that. Uh, they minimize or avoid the feasts of God the times that he appointed to be done every year for remembrances, it says. Remember what? Remember why? If it was 2,000 years ago, why do I need to remember that? Unless it has ramifications for my future, or man's future. Then there's a reason to go back and say, oh, that's what happened. That's about to happen again. Is it good or bad? So, we use those things to project. And the projections are actually in here for us if we've wit enough to see them. The only thing I've run across, really, uh, that indicates the holy days are important is by, uh, I keep trying to say Hurl, but it's not his name, that did the Witness in the Stars. Uh, I'll think of it in just a minute. But he went through and showed how the constellations in the heavens go through a yearly pattern and uh, that they represent the plan and the purpose of God for man. And he attached meaning to those very similar to what we found in here. And he studied the Bible quite a bit. Uh, he knew it very well. Uh, even wrote a commentary on it as well. Uh, I wish I could say his name because it's worth mentioning. He's, he did some wonderful work. But I know of no churches around the world that keep God's holy days other than the Jews sort of. Uh, they kind of do, but they don't really understand what they mean. And they got the calendar so screwed up they don't do it at the right time anyway. Uh, so you have to look far and wide to find somebody that understands why God wrote what he wrote in Leviticus 23 and telling us to keep these things. He wouldn't tell us to do something unless it was good for us, unless there was value in it. All the things that he tells us in here to do, if we do them, our lives are better. If we don't do them, our lives are commensurately worse. Because he always gives good advice. 
the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, to fear to go against what he says. Because our nature is to go against what he says and not want to do what he says because something else sounds like more fun to us or a better way to live to us. Uh, the ways of man lead to death. That's just what they do. And we've got a world that's dying around us. Is that story in here? Where is it? Well, let's begin here in Exodus. Uh, we've already gone over uh, the first part of the seven days of unleavened bread. I'm in Leviticus, thir- I mean Exodus 13 here. Uh, before chapter 12, you'll recall that a lot of plagues came on Egypt because God had promised Moses that he would deliver Israel from that 430 years of captive, captivity they had been in. And in so doing, the Mitzrayim Empire at that time was a major empire, very powerful, and had three and a half million, we estimate, slaves at their bidding to do an awful lot of free work for them. So they had grown into a very, very powerful nation. And it took those plagues back there in chapters 10 and 11 uh, to break them down to even the idea that they would let Israel go. And it also weakened them terribly because animals died, crops died, drought. Uh, they had fleas and flies and frogs and all kinds of things that tormented them. And then on Passover night, Christ killed all their firstborn of man and beast. And that's right there. Well, what if he went through and killed all the firstborn in America? Uh, 330 million people, and let's say people have two, two and a half kids average each. I don't think it's even quite as high as that now. And uh, that could be a third or a fourth of your people killed. Just, just like that, overnight. What a, ooh. Can you imagine tens of thousands right here in St. George area dying overnight? And what, that, what mayhem and confusion that would cause. So he began a deliverance like he had said he would do. And then they sacrificed the lamb, killed the firstborn, and that's what actually released them to go. So this is actually a two-part deliverance is what it amounts to. They went from their homes, hit the trail that night, right after midnight, and were, in that sense, away from Mitzrayim, were traveling, were going away. They'd left on their journey, if you will. And then, seven days later, they'd come to the Red Sea, and here come the Egyptians after them with all their chariots. What do we do? What do we do? And that's here in chapter 13. I'm not going to go through and read it all because you know the story probably quite well. But they panicked and God put a fire by night and a cloud by day around them to protect them from the sun, to give them light. Uh, They had that. And Moses was asking God, kind of, what do I do? 
and the people were crying out to God, and then they came and cried out to Moses, what do we do? And God said, what do you mean, what do you do? You're leaving, go forward. Well, you open the Red Sea, go forward. Now that's, that's a tough one, isn't it? We have trouble believing God. Adam and Eve had trouble believing from the very beginning. What do you mean I can't eat that? Satan said. Well, sure you can. It won't hurt you. It'll make you smarter. Ooh, smart pills. I'll have one of those. And it caused a lot of trouble. It still does. So there they were, not knowing really what to do, but God caused that cloud to come over, and the Egyptians couldn't see to get through. And he caused an east wind, and it blew the Red Sea open overnight. And the wind was so good that it even dried the bottom out so that they could walk across. Come on now. A lot of people have trouble believing that story. Really? I've seen people manufacture all kinds of things, how they walked through the Reed Sea in old ancient Egypt over there, where it was, you know, it was mucky and went up to the knees, but you could get around. So they went that way. I've heard others say that it's up here in this land, which he has right, but uh, it wasn't very big, and they built a dam and made a flood, capability of a flood, and then they set hornets and bees' nests all in that thing, and then they set it on fire, and the bees tormented the Egyptians, and then was the dam burned, it turned the water loose and, and drowned them. They can't believe that God could do anything. He created the heavens and the earth. What's any big deal about opening up some water? He can do that. He's God, sovereign of all the universe. People just don't want to believe him. But I believe this. I look at the geology around, and I can see that there's been some pretty heavy water damage from before man was created, uh, with the strata that are laid across the earth, and geologists are out there tinking around trying to discover uh, where it all, how it all happened and when it all happened, and they, they talk hundreds of millions of years. And indeed, some of that may have happened over that long period of time before man was ever here. But they have it all laid out so neatly that these strata came, and this one took, let's just pick a number, 100 million years for this to develop. And then the next one over it started, and it took X billions of years or whatever. But they come into problems where there's a tree that's in both of those. And trees don't live that long. How does this happen? So they don't really know what's going on. But if you've looked and traveled much, we've got the Grand Canyon right here. It's obvious there's been something pretty big happen there. Whether you know what it was, or I do, or they do, uh, is moot. It's there. It happened. And somebody had to create all this because it didn't happen on its own. So, this isn't necessarily a sermon on faith, but here we are at the Red Sea, and them believing God was questionable. But it got dark, and the wind came up, and then they could see to walk through, got on the other side, 
And God looked through the cloud and saw the Egyptians going in there. Said, okay, got them. They went on in. And they were driving so hard and so furiously, probably scared. When you have wall of water on either side up there, that isn't natural, not normal. Uh, so they were in a hurry. And the wheels started coming off their chariots, and they couldn't go. Horses can't drag something without wheels very fast. And then God said, when Moses used his arms, fill it in. And they all drowned, and they started floating up on the beach, and the Egyptian empire was destroyed. Not only had their economy, their agriculture been destroyed by the plagues, but now their whole army was destroyed. Now that's, and, the, and Israel hadn't had to do a thing. Just put blood of a lamb over their doorpost and leave when the Egyptians told them to leave. That's all they had to do. God took care of the rest through Christ and the parting of the Red Sea. So minimally, let's say then, that happened on this last great day of unleavened bread, and it appears that it did. What a great deliverance. Two parts. First part, Egyptians die, firstborn. That springs them loose. But they're not out of danger yet. So on the seventh day, the Red Sea parts, they get out, the army's obliterated, and now they are free from Mitzrayim for good. And they hardly had, all they had to do was a little marching and hopefully believe. But God didn't do this based necessarily on their faith. He did it based on the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and what he had promised to them. Because these people didn't even really know who God was at this point. They'd been in Egypt for 430 years. And when they were told, God's going to deliver you, they said, which one? They had a list. The Mitzrayimites had a long list of gods they worshipped. Alligators, frogs, uh, water, you name it. They worshipped it. So, well, this is the real God. Who that? They don't know who that is. So he took care of them anyway. First and seventh days. Now those days are memorable in history, for sure. And really, is it not a two-part deliverance that we celebrate? Because there was a type there for us. We revere Christ on the first day of unleavened bread, Passover, for his death and resurrection. We don't do it because of what happened in Egypt. We, rem we remember that. We go back and read that to see the type of what God said back there would come to pass in him. Now, here's a good reason to believe God. He gave you something back here to do and said it pointed forward to something else, and that something else happened, and Christ came and died and resurrected. So, you can believe, you can trust what he said. Now, these people built great belief and trust with that episode of the Red Sea, did they not? Not is the word there. 
They got thirsty right away and said, Red Sea? Oh, that's past. That was yesterday. What are we drinking today? And they murmured and complained and griped. And that cost them 40 years, and it cost the adults there their lives, is what it cost. Now, understand that when they were to be delivered from Mitzrayim, they were to go where? To the Promised Land. Now, they should have been able to go to the Promised Land immediately. If they'd had the right attitude, they could have gone straight to the Promised Land, been given all the blessings that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but instead they chose not to believe that God could get them there, and the first day, their attitudes went south. Now, that cost them 40 years of wandering until all their carcasses died, save Caleb and Joshua. And their children then went into the promised land. Now, I can show you a parallel very close to that. Uh, well, two of them. But let's look at the remnant that God is to call here at the end of His church to come and build His temple and to form the latter temple. Now, He tells them that they must leave Babylon or Egypt. Symbolism, Egypt symbolizes sin. They have to leave those places and go into the wilderness, and there they will be delivered. Now, that's what Israel was working under. We go out of Egypt, we go to the Promised Land, ha, we're delivered. And they would not only have deliverance, they would have restoral and restitution blessings would come. Once they went into the Promised Land, they'd have everything they needed. Deuteronomy 8 says that the Promised Land would contain everything they needed. They didn't have to go anywhere to get anything. It would all be there. But they didn't want to believe that. They wanted to complain about the water. Now let's look at the end time church here a little bit. We were doing, in many respects, quite well. The church was growing from the time God called Herbert Armstrong in 1926 and 7. And it had grown a great deal. We had wonderful campuses and beautiful buildings. And it was growing in numbers. was financially in very good shape. Doing really well. And then people began to be a little eh, lackadaisical about it, a little lazy spiritually, not as zealous as they had been, more hypocritical and certainly self-righteous. We have the truth, so, you know, we're the only ones on the earth with the truth, so we must be the apple of God's eye completely. Now, he does say that his people that he calls out are the apple of his eye. That's wonderful. It's nice to be appreciated by God. But you don't have to get to the place you're proud of it. 
We are to be meek and to be humble and to be thankful to Him for what we do have instead of being proud and thinking we're more than we are. So, we thought we had it made into the kingdom of God, like the Pharisees. We got it made. All we need is our plane ticket to go to Petra, of all places, and we'll be saved. So, there was an awful lot of pride and self-righteousness in the church. And it equated to, overall, the attitude of the Israelites when they had crossed the sea and started looking around and saying, we need more. Give us more. Like, give us water. It wasn't long until we want food. Give us food. But their attitude was so bad by then <clears throat> that God had said, all right, 40 years you're going to wonder. How did he get in the church? Let's take the period from the time Herbert Armstrong died, 1986, and fast forward to today. That's been 37 years now. That little chart I made, I put 40 years wandering in the wilderness in there on the side from 1986 to 2026. And I think that there is a, uh, a correlation here. We've been, since he died, kind of wandering in a wilderness without leadership for the most part for 37 years. And if it equates to the 40 that they wandered in the wilderness, we got about three more years of it. Till 2026 at least. Why? Because the attitude had become self-righteous and lackadaisical and not on fire for God and not truly appreciating what He had done for us. So He describes Laodicea and says, I'm screwing you out. Do we have to wait 40 years for deliverance? That's about another three if that, if that time frame fits. Most do. 90% of what was worldwide is going to go into the tribulation and be martyred there. So the type of the 40 years in the wilderness back then equates very well to the end time church today. We've been nearly 40 years. And those who do not repent after having been spewed out, Revelation 3, are going to go on into it. And by the time that 40 years is complete, their carcasses <coughs> will have been scattered because the beast and the false prophet and Satan will have no mercy on them whatsoever. Now many of them may repent and be martyrs and be in the kingdom of God after all. I think at least a third will, according to Zechariah about 12. So many will repent, and they won't die the eternal death, but they will have gone 40 years and died physically just like ancient Israel coming out after the Red Sea. That parallel is kind of startling in a way, isn't it? To realize that we've been going through on a mental-emotional basis <laughs> what they did wandering around out there. So what a great deliverance. And then after 40 years of attitude adjustment hour, uh, their children went on into the promised land 
and stayed there until their disobedience got them kicked out. <laughs> now we in America have been here since 17 or 1587. I believe that is uh, the time that the first permanent colony actually was established in Roanoke. And people had marked on the tree and they had moved inland apparently, so they were still here and survived. But you have Ezekiel's prophecy there of 430 years. And laid on his side for Israel and for Judah, 430 years. And then God says there in Ezekiel 6, 7, 8, right through there, that soon after he did that, that each day was as a year. 430 years, made it very clear. Uh, Israel will be destroyed. <clears throat> now, there's no period since then in ancient history that you have 430 years laid out anywhere that Israel was doing well and then went into captivity after 430 years. It didn't happen. There's nothing in history to show that. But we... We're here permanently, back in the promised land, if you will. Remember he said when he designated the promised land, it would be from the sea on the north, Great Salt Lake, to the waters of Strife on the south, Grand Canyon, Colorado River, the rapids, and east and west a certain distance, which takes us all about to Nevada and over into the sea that was on the east side around Hanksville, through that area. Uh, but that he would expand it in time. And yes, he expanded it to this whole continent because we took over this whole continent, basically. Certainly, U.S. and Canada. And even in Mexico, they are part Israelite. Uh, so, yeah, we got the whole continent. <clears throat> now, a God is fair. Above everything, well, not above everything, but one of his main characteristics is he's very fair. And he took 430 years away from Israel, had them in captivity most of that time, and then 430 years later, on the very same day they went out, he turned them loose. And they went through periods of up and down through the kings and judges and so on, and through the time that Christ was here, and then they basically disappeared. No one knew where they went. The Twelve lost tribes, they're called. We know now through research and genetic studies and so on that they wound up in Western Europe. And in 1587, they were allowed to return to the Promised Land on the shores of America. And guess what? God gave us back the 430 years that we had been in slavery. He gave us 430 years of freedom here. Freedom to serve Him. Freedom to do our own thing. No one overseeing us, telling us what to do. We got rid of the British pretty quick. And we had 430 years of freedom here. That ended in 2017, 430 years later, when that eclipse came over the nation at noon uh, there in August. 
And it wasn't long after that, COVID and all kinds of other things hit, and we are just about to go under as a nation. Back into captivity, because God gave us 433 years, and we screwed it up royally. And now we're about to be taken over and back into captivity again. I just read last night that now there are at least 82 countries who are busily trying to get rid of the U.S. dollar as fast as they can, trading among each other with their own money instead of using the U.S. dollar exclusively as they had to do before. Eighty-two countries, and I think a bunch more are going to be announced real shortly. The petrodollar is done. The United States is done. Poke a fork in it. Our goose is cooked. We're done. We're going to see the economy fail very shortly now, and we're going to be invaded not too long after that and taken back into captivity. Ezekiel made that very clear. One-third will die of famine and pestilence, one-third of the sword, and one-third taken captive. That's us. So here's the just opposite pancake, or other side of the coin, of the 430 years of captivity, 430 years of freedom, and we didn't use it right, and now it's over, and we're about to go back into captivity again. Ezekiel didn't say it would happen immediately the same day. He said, shortly thereafter, a while, a little while, he kept saying, there'd be some time before we actually went back into captivity, but not like the echoing of the hills. It wouldn't be forever, but it would be fairly quickly. It's just a few years since then, and look where we are. Uh, we're in trouble deeply. So, these things get repeated. I have so much to give you, but let's, let's sum this, a summary statement, here kind of toward the beginning. The Seventh Day of Unleavened Bread, at least so far in my research, the last day of unleavened bread pictures two things very importantly. One, deliverance. Uh, the Red Sea was the second half of that original deliverance. So deliverance, a great deliverance maybe, would be a way to put it, on the seventh day of unleavened bread. Now that has to be echoed at some time in the future because those original events were there as a prophecy of the future. That they would be repeated in some form or fashion. And the second thing then, <clears throat> and we'll get into that some today, is the restitution of all things. They were to leave Mithraim, and go into the promised land, and all the things that had been prophesied were to be restored. They were to have everything they needed in the promised land. Everything that Adam and Eve had had could have been theirs had they simply chosen to obey God. So he was going to deliver them after 430 years, and then he was going to restore all these things. 
You can find in the prophecies all the way through that he had intended to restore a lot of things. You also read in the prophecies that an end time uh, parallel would occur. Now, we've been going through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the minor prophets, and the Psalms, and many places throughout the Bible for the last 27 years, showing what God is going to do here at the end time. How He will restore things that have been left in the past, but only to a certain group. Most of the church, as we just discussed, are going, are going through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, not knowing what to do or where to go. You see people wandering from group to group to group, in the front door, out the back door. I look at the prayer list in Church of the Great God, for instance, occasionally, and uh, when I was there... I knew everybody. I knew all the names of everybody. There were like 400 people. And now, about one out of 20 or 30 I might recognize. There's been that much turnover since I left there. There's been turnover here. There's turnover everywhere because everybody has been in confusion. Hanging to a certain amount of the truth but not really trying to overcome what it was that caused God to spew us out in the first place. So most, 90%, are going into the Great Tribulation and not survive it physically. 10%, he says, and you and I have been over that how many times, are going to be drawn out to build a temple, to build Jerusalem, to support the two witnesses, to preach against the world. We know that's going to happen because the prophecies are absolutely full of it. And I can quote you a thousand verses, not today, don't have time. I've already, we've already gone through them over and over and over again. But I never really equated it to this last day of unleavened bread. Let's go to Acts 2. Here you have the story of the early New Testament church just starting up. We're all very familiar with this story. We got right up close to it during these days talking about what happened to Christ and what he did after his resurrection with the disciples. And he had told them to remain in Jerusalem for until Pentecost would come. Now, they were there. They were unconverted. They'd gone efficient or whatever. Uh and we're waiting for Pentecost. Now you notice too that Pentecost is tied to the Passover season very closely. It has a tether, if you will. Fifty days from the Sabbath during the days of unleavened bread, as we went over yesterday, uh, they were to count fifty, forty-nine Sabbath, forty-nine days, seven Sabbaths, and the next day would be Pentecost. So, 50 days. Those two feast times, the Passover season, because that day that you start to count rotates through all seven days, depending on the year. It can be a Wednesday. It can, no, it's got to be a, a Sabbath 
that it could be first day of or seventh day of or any time in between, but it has to be a weekly Sabbath. So you count from that weekly Sabbath 50 days and you got Pentecost always on a Sunday. Now, none of the other holy days have a count like that from one to the other where you are to count it out as he tells us to do Pentecost. Count 50. Pentecost has to do with 50 days after a time during Passover and it means or is a type of (coughs) excuse me, the Jubilee. 50 year cycle was the Jubilee. So you have a 50 day period there which represents you probably haven't heard this a Jubilee. The same amount of time in days that it is in years. But what did we have when Pentecost came? We had death and resurrection in type of Christ We had putting sin out of our lives for seven days, working at being what we ought to be. Then the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and they are imbued with it, and they began to do miracles and signs and wonders and all kinds of things, and the church began to grow with three or five thousand people a day for a short time. Once they had the Holy Spirit, they had the liberty in Christ that Paul speaks of. Liberty from what? The law? No. If you keep the law, the law will set you free. What you have, if you keep the law of God, is freedom from guilty conscience, freedom from uh, envious husbands killing you, freedom from all kinds of things, that if you don't hurt people and harm people, they won't turn around and do back to you. So you decide you'll be a thief, and you rob a bank, and you get to spend 20 years in jail. That's not freedom, is it? Breaking God's law costs you your freedom. Keeping God's law, not robbing the bank, gave you freedom. So we have liberty from a lot of the things that drag people down in our society today. God says we should control ourselves. And he mentions alcohol, for instance. It's okay to drink because it says it's okay in the Bible. But it isn't okay to be habitually drunken. Because what does that do? It ruins the drunk. It ruins the drunk's family. Uh, It ruins the family that they have a head-on collision with and kill? Now, that's not freedom. The liberty in Christ is the liberty from all this bad stuff that happens when you break His laws. So, this deliverance of from Egypt, type of deliverance from sin under Christ, is there, and it's tethered to Pentecost, because after he actually died, 50 days later they received the Holy Spirit of promise, and life changed for them. It got better when they had the Holy Spirit dwelling in them than it had been before. So, that's a jubilee. 
of sorts. It's a type of jubilee. The freedom of the Holy Spirit. Well, here when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And then you know about the mighty wind and the tongues of fire that came. And they began to speak in other languages. Uh, you'll find when it speaks of the remnant church in Isaiah and other places, I think specifically Isaiah, it talks about talking in tongues or different languages there. It's going to be fulfilled by the remnant church, just like it was here with the original New Testament church. The end time New Testament church will do the same thing. And Peter uh, stood up and preached, verse 14, and showed that if they weren't drunk, it was too early in the day, third hour of the day, nine in the morning. But this was spoken by the prophet Joel in verse 16. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and my handmaids I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now he thought that this that was happening in his right there with him was the fulfillment, the final fulfillment of Joel 2. No, it wasn't. <clears throat> because they may have had miracles, but they didn't have wonders in the heaven. Uh, signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun turned to darkness and the moon into blood before that great notable day of the Lord come. That didn't happen in Acts 2. He quoted it because he thought it was about to happen because he still thought Christ was coming back in his lifetime. So he thought this is Joel 2 and this is the end of Joel 2. No, we find that he is going to do the same thing Again, in Joel 2, because he says he'll give us the former and the latter rain in the first month, and later on will come the young men's and maidens and so on, having the visions and dreams and so on, and that it will then follow with those heavenly signs. And the first part of Joel shows that the day of the Lord is coming, and that's the setting for the day for the book of Joel. And he shows he's going to bless a certain amount of people, even though the whole world is going to be going through the end-time day of the Lord and the Holocaust at the end. But he's going to be blessing a few people then, and guess who they are? They're the people of his church, just like they were in Acts 2. It will be again in the end. So we are looking for that kind of deliverance from whom? The beast and the false prophet, Satan himself, who will be in charge of the whole world with the new world order, and they will be trying to kill everyone who serves God. And they'll get the job almost done. So the remnant church is going to have a great deliverance. And it's going to come at a time, and Peter goes on and says this, Let's go to chapter 3. I don't, have time to, I don't have time to do all of this today. I want to give you a basis. There will be more. Chapter 3, uh, 
They went in, and here was the Peter and John. They went in, and here was the man who was lame. Been laying there for years and years and years. Couldn't walk. And they restored his ability to walk. And this became a big deal. But what does it say in Isaiah 35 and other places? The lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and so on. And it is the context of God blessing here in the end time, is what it is. So, that happened in the beginning of the church here. But let's go on down, because people ask him, what should we do? Here you are preaching Christ. You're telling us we can be maybe part of the kingdom of God. But he's going to set it up. What do we do? He tells them in verse 19 of chapter 3, Repent you therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now that was advice all the way since man began. Repent, quit sinning, keep God's laws, and turn to Him. Always good advice. Same thing repeated throughout history. That your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come uh, from the presence of the Lord. I heard Herbert Armstrong refer to this scripture here uh, several times over the years, but I don't think he quite understood all the ramifications of it. He looked at it through the idea that the times of refreshing, the time of restitution, would be at the beginning of the millennium. And that, as far as it goes, is true. I have no problem with that whatsoever. But it's not the whole story. There's more. Let's read on. When the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Eternal... And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. So he's saying here that Christ was going to go back to his Father in heaven, and he was going to stay there until the time to restore things. Now, that truly would include the millennium, because... The whole world will have been destroyed by the beast and false prophet and even by angels and by Christ himself coming back and putting down the rest of the rebellion. So, people will not have food. They will not have good water. They will not maybe have clothes. People are going to be in very, very sad condition once World War III ends. And God will begin to restore, and he will build his kingdom here on the earth that will last a thousand years of peace. The Sabbath, if you will. A day is as a year. So, seven, a, thousand, a thousand years of peace. A day is as a thousand years, it also says in Numbers 1434, I think it is. But is that when the restitution actually begins? And we've been studying here a time of restitution that begins with the remnant church once it comes out of worldwide who is still wandering in the wilderness. Spiritual confusion wilderness, not physical wilderness. 
And God will begin to restore all things. He tells the Elijah at the end, who will be one of the two witnesses, that he must restore all things. So, all the things that God talks about through the prophecies have to be restored. Knowledge, understanding, true religion. Now, those are the things that need to be restored first. They're the most important. Which is more important, spiritual water or physical water? Well, ultimately, if you don't have spiritual water, the physical water won't help you. You'll die anyway. So, in the long run, the spiritual water from God, the true doctrine of Christ, is more important to us. Because how long we live here, you live a few days and die without physical water, you're still able to be in the resurrection if you have spiritual water. So the amount of time we live on this earth doesn't mean much. It's what we do with it. Now, doctrine has to be restored. Haven't we been getting an awful lot of understanding and restoral? It comes like floods of water in the desert. I'll tell you what. When I started thinking about this subject, and something someone wrote put me on it about the seventh day of unleavened bread. And last night, I was tired. Been to the picnic and the sun and everything. I was tired, and I didn't really feel like studying. And I was frustrated. So I laid down. Thought, well, I'll sleep a while, then I'll get up and study this some more and try to figure these things out about what's the typology of this day. Because I didn't fully understand it. I had some clues by then, but I didn't fully understand it. But you know what? When I laid down in bed, I thought, well, before I do go to sleep, I need to pray. Because this stuff's all on my mind, and, and I just need to talk to God about it. I'll tell you what. Within five to fifteen minutes, this all came as clear as a bell. It just went through my mind like floods of living waters, like waters in the desert, because my mind was thirsty for this understanding. And God just opened it, poured it out. It took about five to fifteen minutes, and I knew what it was all about. Well, then it got me excited, and I got up, felt pretty good, and went through a lot of scriptures, and sure enough, there's the story. So, <clears throat> here we are. Sometimes I've thought, well, we haven't been delivered. We came from the city out here in the wilderness, and here we are. Well, we've been being delivered with knowledge, true knowledge, and proper doctrine for quite some time. And that's more important than physical water. And I think the time of that period of time is coming to a close pretty abruptly. And then he's going to do a miracle in the desert. And there's going to be lakes and springs and waters. I have down here, maybe I don't have time to go through it all today. But remember they had... Fire and clouds at the Red Sea. Remember that for 40 years, they had the cloud and the fire. Cloud and the fire. 
I can show you three times that God either has or will do that. Uh, let's see. Where did I write those scriptures? Oh, Exodus 31. It talks about it there at the Red Sea. And then uh, Zechariah 2, 5. It talks about how Christ will be a wall of fire around the two witnesses and the remnant. So it's the same thing. Same kind of protection. He also says in, uh, if I can read it, oh, in, in uh, Isaiah 4. I'll turn back real quickly to that one. Isaiah 4, speaking of the same period of time, this time when God is calling His remnant out before the tribulation starts, so they don't go through it, but the rest of the church, 90% do. Here's where the seven women will take hold of one man. That's all seven church eras. And he's going to take care of them, he says, in Zion, dwelling place in Zion, verse 5. And a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night, whereupon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. So he's going to do the same thing with the end time church remnant that he did with ancient Israel at the Red Sea and all the way through the wilderness. God does the same things over and over. Now, if he did it at the Red Sea and he's going to do it again, doesn't that begin in your mind to tie these events together? That it is a, another fulfillment of what happened at the Red Sea. And it's just in front of us. Won't be long until it happens. And I can give you quite a few <clears throat> examples of how things that happened back then, if you read it in Exodus or you read it in the Psalms, are going to be done again with the remnant church. It's over and over and over. You can begin to put some of those together yourself because you've been through those prophecies so many times that you can see the parallel between what he did and what he's going to do very shortly now. But back to Acts uh, 4, or 3. The Christ would be in the heavens until the times of restitution of all things. So he says Elijah must restore all the true doctrines and even more. We have to know if the temple is to be built by the remnant church, you've got to know where the temple was. You've got to know where Jerusalem was. You've got to know where the promised land was. There are a lot of things you have to know in order to do the things God says have to be done in the book of Daniel and other places. So that had to all be restored. And he sent us out here where he's going to do it. All these things which God has spoken to the mouth, by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. Go through the prophecies. You'll see all the things God says He's going to do. He's going to do a wondrous work. He's going to, well, it's, uh, Isaiah 55 is a good one. I think 51 verse, maybe, if I recall. Yeah, I'll go to 51 first, verse 2. 
Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah that uh, bore you, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. For the eternal shall comfort Zion, he will comfort her as in her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. He's going to make the desert just like Eden was. Eden is a type of what God is going to do with his end-time remnant people. Give you another one in chapter 55 where I was headed. <clears throat> Here he talks about the remnant gathering in chapter 54 after Passover. 53 is about Passover. <clears throat> 54 is about the remnant coming and a lot of people showing up. And then how is he going to take care of them? What are they going to do? We just came across the Red Sea. We got no food and water. What are we going to do? He gave them quail and man and water. What's he going to do here? Restore it like it was Eden. And then he says, Ho, everyone that thirsts, come to the waters. There's going to be water everywhere. And he that has no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So instead of manna and quail, how about milk and honey? Or money, I mean wine. Wine and milk. And other things. He says there in Zechariah 2 that Jerusalem, the villages of it, will have much men and cattle. So you can add meat to the list that things will have. He's doing the same thing over again that he did way back then. Everything's going to be restored to the original. And this is going to be done before the millennium. Time of the two witnesses of the remnant church building the temple that the beast and the false prophet will defile. That's premillennial. And that's when the church flees to Zion to be protected three and a half years while 90% of the church goes on into the tribulation and dies. So we got that 40 years there and we've got the church remnant being protected from it. These things just go on and on. Those, these are the things spoken of by the mouth of the holy prophets since the world began. Peter's quoting this, but he's standing there, having seen the cloven tongues of fire. He's seen the tongues. He's seen the lame man walk. And yet here he's talking about the future when things are restored. So it was not considered at that point that everything had been restored. It's a two-part restoral. The first part is with the remnant church to build the temple and to preach the gospel around the world as a witness to the whole world. And then that period ends and the millennium begins immediately thereafter. So it is a small restoral. It's all the way back to Eden, though. That kind of restoral. All things. So that you have everything that Adam and Eve had in the garden is going to be in the original promised land around Jerusalem. It'll be a short time. 
just a few years. And then the huge restoral of the whole earth will occur. Now, the temple has to be built, and, I, and Ezekiel explains that, Ezekiel 46 to 48. And it says, from under the temple that the church builds will come a water to restore and to start removing pollution. Then when it talks about the millennium and the new heavens and new earth coming down at the beginning of that, the throne of God, and a river will come from under it to purify the nations. So he's doing these things one after another. Now that's going to be a bigger river going further that comes out from under his throne in the millennium than the one coming out from the temple that the church restores. But he does it the same way, see. And what he did in Egypt and on the last great day were symbolic of what he is going to do here at the end. So this day pictures a great deliverance, which it'll be. How can you say it's not a great deliverance when you have the beast and the false prophet ruling, and if you don't take their mark in your hand or your forehead, you will die. You can't buy or sell. And they will have total control. They're, they're clamping down right now in this country because we have communists in control of the country. And they've already shaken their hands and sold us out, just like Jeremiah 15 and 51 say they do. And there's an, there's an army coming not too far behind. Once we get so weak, they're doing their best to start a civil war. And that will start. Uh, Jeremiah says that. Ruler against ruler, killing each other. Washington's going to have a lot of senators and military people and so on killing each other. They're already threatening it. You didn't hear that 30, 40 years ago. Now they threaten it openly. And they're going to start doing it. All these things are coming to pass. And to be delivered from that is a huge deliverance. If you can go out to the Zion area here and be protected through it, you have been delivered in a mighty deliverance. Remember, the two witnesses are going to go up against the beast and the false prophet. They'll have fire coming out of their mouth to kill anybody that tries to harm them. They'll be toe-to-toe with the beast and the false prophet for three and a half years while the remnant church is living in peace and safety in Zion as an example of how God can take care of people if they'll just obey Him. And the message to the world is going to be, quit worshiping the beast and the false prophet, worship God in heaven, and then you can have world peace. But they get this money from the government every month, and that's the only way I can eat. So they won't listen. What a great deliverance that will be. Now, you want an even greater deliverance. It's at the end of World War III, when Christ has come and finally put down all rebellion, and there are no armies left. The beast and the false prophet will have been taken by the map of the neck and thrown in a fire, and Satan will be bound, and there will be peace. Now, what a deliverance that is from all these years of war that are just ahead of us. So, 
the deliverance starts with a smaller one, with the remnant church, who need to finish the work of God, prior to Christ taking absolute charge, and then goes on into the millennium. So it's a small one that is part of the big one. Just like the deliverance at Passover started when they left their homes and with the plagues, and the plagues will be repeated by the two witnesses, the plagues of Egypt. They can bring all those things down. Water turned to blood. Things stop. So that back there was only a type of what is to come. So the deliverance had two steps. A week apart, get out of your homes and hit the road, and then cross the Red Sea, and then you're free of Egypt from then on. And if you'll be good, you'll go straight to the promised land. If you don't, you'll wander 40 years and die, and only a few will go in, or your children will go in. Same here. Laodicean church spewed out. Repent. If you don't repent, you'll go through 40 years and be dead. If you do, you'll come out a few years early and into the restored promised land. So it is both deliverance and the time of restitution of all things is what we're looking at that God is going to do with the church. Great deliverance from the beast and a restitution to the degree of the Garden of Eden. Now that's quite a difference. You think that's going to make an impression on the world? When they see out here a Garden of Eden protected by clouds and fire, just like Israel was when they came out of Egypt. The parallels there are... I've mentioned a few, and I'm out of time. But there are a lot more if you want to go through all the prophecies. And we have covered those for years now, going over them, but I had not defined it according to the last day of unleavened bread. To get the true meaning of it, you have to see what happened then, and then read the prophecies of what's about to happen, and then you can see what happened back then was deliverance, and ultimately the promised land. Here, deliverance from Satan and the beast, restoral of the promised land. It's all the same. So the last day of unleavened bread has great meaning in our lives, though we've brushed over it. And maybe God didn't want that one really known by Herbert Armstrong or anybody back then, or hardly anybody today, because it wasn't coming until now, very shortly now. And all these things are coming to pass. So that's a that's a good start. <clears throat> There's more to back it up and prove it, and maybe there's more to learn about it. But uh, that's what I began to see immediately was, this is what it's all about. And I think that fits. So, it's been wonderful these seven days. I think we've examined a lot of scriptures. We've had a lot of good fellowship and good food, and I hope spiritual growth and putting sin out of our lives, that's what... The real purpose was because God doesn't bless until the sin's gone. Now there's another one.
Isaiah 44, he says, I'll forgive all your sins and wipe them out in one day. And then he shows blessings and treasures of God's hidden things that need to go in the temple and his riches that the church will have that the beast and the false prophet will be jealous of until God gives it to them for a short while. <laughs> so it just goes on and on where we're headed. And the feast, the last day of unleavened bread then has more to do with the end time church than any group of people ever. That's what it amounts to. And then it will, of course, grow from there to the millennium and all of mankind that survives the Holocaust. So it's a big deal. Uh, the last day of unleavened bread is a bigger deal than I ever thought it was. So I hope you see some light in that.